This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Psalm 34, and it starts on page 463 in the Black Bible in your pew. Psalm 34, page 463. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes this boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, before we jump into Psalm 34, uh, just a quick announcement. Uh, we normally have cookouts on the second Sunday of the month, which is today, but we do not have a cookout tonight because we're going to have a members meeting here tonight at 6.30. So if you're a member, we'd love for you to uh, show up and join us. We're going to have our cookout next week. Um, And then I'm officially petitioning to have the name changed to whatever Sunday works cookouts. (laughs) Just kidding. Second Sunday is a great name. It just fits. Um, Everything that we sang this morning is what Psalm 34 is about. It's about remembering the goodness of God. It's about looking beyond where we find ourselves, looking beyond our circumstances and tasting and seeing that the most fundamental reality in the world, in our world, in your world, is the goodness of God. So David unpacks and unfolds that in a few ways that we're going to look at and dive into this morning. Before we get into that, let me pray for us, and then we'll see what this text has for us. So will you uh, you pray with me? (laughs) 
Father, we're coming into this room in a lot of different ways. Um, as many people are in this room are like, the number of circumstances and problems and blessings and joys and heartaches. Um, we're, 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 we're really different. We're coming here in a lot of different ways, but we all need you. Our need for you is exactly the same. We need to remember that you are still, right now, just as good as you have ever been. There's never been a moment when your goodness, when your holiness, when your grace has been in doubt. You have everything. You have what we need. So God, we want to bless you. We want to find refuge in you. We want to taste and see that you're good. Um, and nothing that I can say can do that. Like, we need you. We need you more than anything. So Spirit of God, I pray that you would come, that you would fill this room, that you would fill the hearts of my friends, that you'd fill me, that you would give me grace and strength. So God, will you glorify your name? Jesus, will you be big? Spirit, will you dwell among us? I pray all this in your name. Amen. Hey, people are driven to commemorate significant events. There's, there's something inside of us that knows that certain dates, uh, events, or memories need to be regularly visited, remembered, thought about, and then used to, to, to determine how we live our life. Think about this. Last week, we observed Independence Day, which is the day where every single year we get together and we commemorate our independence from Great Britain by blowing a lot of stuff up and eating a lot of food that's really unhealthy for us. We do that because we want to look back and remember a significant event that actually still has implications for the way that we live today. We do the same thing with anniversaries where we look back and remember, hey, on this date, something happened that changed the trajectory of my life forever. And that's worth coming back to and remembering. And we do this in all sorts of different ways too. Go to Arrowhead Stadium and you will see a banner celebrating the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory. If you want to experience some real heartache and if you want to uh, just kind of be miserable for an afternoon, you could go to Kauffman Stadium and um, watch the Royals and look at a distant memory of when times were good, when there, we did win the World Series. There are flags flying to commemorate. I love the Royals, guys. I'm a huge Royals fan. So if you guys are like upset with me right now for bashing the Royals, it's just my own pain and disappointment talking, trying to feel better. But there are flags in Kauffman Stadium that commemorate and point back to the time when we won the World Series. We we sing songs like we sang this morning, reminding ourselves of the way that God has been merciful to us, the ways that God has shown up and met us all throughout our lives. And these remarkers remind us of something that happened, and they call us to action, to live in a certain way in response to what happened. Markers and memorials inform how we view our place in the world and how we should live. What does this have to do with anything? Psalm 34 is David's marker. 
It's an Ebenezer, which we sang in that song, like, I will build an Ebenezer stack it stone by stone in the Bible. And Ebenezer is a pile of rocks that people would build to be a tangible reminder of a time when God showed up in a powerful and significant way. And Psalm 34 is a song from David in response to a significant, an event, a significant event in his life where he thanks God, he blesses God, and he gives instructions to all those who are around him, which includes us, on how we should look at God and respond to him in the ways that he has worked in our lives. David is saying, if you want to experience blessing, if you want to experience the good life, then the way that you do that is by pursuing God. And I, and I would assume uh, for, for most of us, um, when we think about the good life or, or if we um, hear that phrase, it looks like or it feels like there's a feeling in our gut. Um, it looks like having enough. It looks like having a happy family, a fulfilling vocation and relationships. But what's fascinating about David when he writes this psalm is that he is anything but fulfilled. He, he is not in the typical kind of place that we would expect someone to be talking about blessing or the good life. David is actually living in exile after a string of personal failures, betrayals, loss, and even sin in his own life. And so instead of pointing to anything circumstantial in Psalm 34, David says that the only way to find blessing, to find the good life, is to walk in faith and obedience before God because blessing comes from knowing God and experiencing his salvation. And because Psalm 34 is a marker, it's commemorating an event in his life, it's actually good for us to go back to look at what David is talking about and what he is responding to in this psalm. So if you have your Bibles um, with me, look down at the beginning of Psalm 34. A lot, a lot of psalms that we have we don't really know what was going on in the life of the author uh, when, when they wrote it, the, but there are a handful of them that actually point back to actual, tangible, historical events uh, that the psalmist is pointing to and responding to. So, so Psalm 34 is one of them. So if you look, there's probably a different font uh, before your psalm starts. And my, in my Bible, it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So turn, turn, with your, Bible, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21, it's on page 244 in my Bible, which means that it is on page 244 in the black hardback uh, Bible in front of you. In this psalm, David is in his mid-20s. Uh, he's a young man, and he is on the run. He's experienced a lot of success, a lot of victory in his life. He's killed Goliath, which made him a national hero. And so everyone is in love with David. David is a sign in Israel of the ways that God has come through, the ways that God has delivered, the ways that God has saved. And so people write songs about David. They praise David. They adore David. And the problem is, is, the king of Israel, Saul, sees this and he realizes that he's in a risky spot because David is a threat now, right? If everyone loves this guy, if everyone is viewing this guy as God's anointed one, then that means his throne is at risk. So Saul does what most tyrants do and he tries to get rid of David. 
and he tries to kill him. So David runs. And David doesn't like really run in a dignified, heroic way, you know, like we see in action movies. D- David is actually pretty pathetic in these chapters in 1 Samuel. He's really low. He doesn't demonstrate steadfast faith in God. Um, instead, he lies, he deceives, he hurts other people by what he does. So um, at the beginning of 1 Samuel 21, we see David coming to this place called Nob. At Nob, the tabernacle was there. It's the place where people came together to worship God. And he shows up and the priests there are like, all right, David, what are you doing here? He probably looks like he's uh, kind of frazzled, a little bit ruffled. He's, he, he's in need. And David says, hey, he lies. King Saul sent me on this mission. Um, it's top secret. I can't talk to you about it, um, but, but do you have food for me? I had to leave so quickly that I didn't bring any food. I didn't bring any provisions. I don't have any weapons. Can, can, you, can you provide for me? So the priest says, well, the only thing that we have is the showbread, which is bread that is dedicated, devoted to God. And David says, that's great. I'll take that. And he says, I, I have, uh, and the priest says, the only sword that I have, the only weapon that I have for you is the sword of Goliath. And David says, perfect. That's great. Let me take that. If you keep reading a little bit further, David's actions there actually wind up getting people killed in the tabernacle. David is not heroic. He's not cunning. He's actually lying to save his own hide and to save his skin. And if you read down a little bit further in verse 10, we see for some reason David goes to Gath. If you grew up in Sunday school, if you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath, Goliath is this giant Philistine, this huge warrior that David kills to save the people of Israel. And Goliath is from where? He's from Gath. So for some reason, David decides to go there to try to save himself from King Saul. Maybe he thought that like, you know, there's no technology and no social media, uh, so people won't recognize him. He can go to the last place that people would expect for him to go, and there he would be safe. So look with me at First uh, Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, hey, is not this David, the king of the land? Uh, did they not sing to one another about him and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his 10,000. So David realizes, hey, I've been found out. Like they're, they're going to kill me. They hate me here. I'm public enemy number one. So David, verse 12, takes these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. If you're wondering why in Psalm 34, it says Abimelech instead of Achish. Abimelech means my father is king. It's the title of the kings in the Philistine land. So Abimelech is the title. Achish is the name. David takes these words to heart and he then, verse 13, humiliates himself. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spit run down his beard. Which, by the way, that's, that's like embarrassing if we do that today. Like, it's not a good look if you go and just start punching a door and drooling all over yourself. Um, in David's time, the beard, like a man's beard, was a sign of honor. So you don't get your beard dirty. You don't cut your beard off. I try to live by these principles. And so to have spit, like run down your beard is the most humiliating thing that he could have done. 
He's thinking, what's the thing that I can do to dishonor myself the most to maybe convince this guy that I'm not a threat? And it kind of works. Look at verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, look, this, this, this man is mad. Why have, you brought the, why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow uh, to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? He says, hey, I have enough problems of my own. If this is David, like he's clearly out of his mind, just get him out of here. We, he's not a problem anymore. So going into chapter 22, David escapes. He runs into the wilderness cave of Adullam, and he's joined there by others. 22 verse 2, and everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over, over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David escapes against all odds in a way that is humiliating, in a way that is shameful, against what he deserves, he is safe. So Psalm 34, which we just heard read, is the response that David writes to bless and thank God and to teach these 400 people who showed up to be with him how to have faith in God alone and how to walk in his way. So turn back to Psalm 34 in your Bibles with me, uh, and we'll, we'll go through it. Psalm 34 is an acrostic poem, which means that there are 22 verses. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with a corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. They would write songs this way to teach people. So this song is, uh, is instruction for the people around us, uh, David and for us. What is David teaching? I love how Tim Keller describes it. David in this psalm is teaching us how to boast in the goodness of God when everything goes wrong. How do you boast in the goodness of God when you are in Adullam? When you're wrestling with the fact that things have not gone the way that you thought they would. When you're confronted with your own failure, when you're confronted with your own sin, David says, hey, it's in that place. It's not in some idealized, everything is okay place that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. It is in that place that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. So let's look at three reasons. David gives at least three reasons why this is true. The first reason that he gives, why you can boast in the goodness of God when everything goes wrong is that God delivers when we don't deserve it. God delivers when we don't deserve it. Look down with me at Psalm 34, verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times, David says in that place. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I want to think about um, for a moment the fact that David says he is going to bless the Lord. Your version might say um, extol, but the Hebrew, the Hebrew here uh, is the word that's always used for blessing in the Old Testament, which is different than praise. 
Because David says, I'll, I'll also praise him. But he says, hey, I am going to actually, with my lips, ascribe blessing, ascribe worth to God. Which is crazy. Because God is not like us. You and I need blessing. You and I need blessing and affirmation from people around us. We need affirmation and blessing from God. God is not like us, though. He does not need a single thing from us. And yet, the Psalms are full of these pictures of men and women coming to God and saying, God, I have seen and experienced everything that you have done. I've experienced your deliverance in the place where I don't deserve it. Therefore, I will return to you the blessing that you have given to me. I will ascribe it back to you and say, all of that was you. Every single thing that I have experienced in my life is from you. Because David could have reinterpreted everything that happened to him as a victory for himself, right? Hey, I was really cunning and clever. I fooled everyone. My smarts, my wits got me out of this pickle that I was in. David doesn't say any of that. He says, the only reason that I have to boast right now is because God was with me. It was not my faithfulness. It was not my obedience. It was not my smarts. It was God's grace. My friends, here's something that is really important for me and for you to learn from this psalm. God does not operate by the principles of karma. God does not operate by the principles of cause and effect. He doesn't come through because David did all the right things and deserved help. God does not operate by deserving. David is coming off a long string of sins and failures, and yet, he says in that place, verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. He's talking about himself there. He said, I don't have anything to offer. I'm just a poor, helpless man that the Lord heard and saved out of all of his troubles. And so David says, I'm going to bless God for that. God does not need it, but he loves it when you come to him and thank him for who he is, for what he has done. He is overjoyed and delights when you come to him and speak back to him. God, this is what you've done. This is how you saw me. This is how you rescued me. And you are worthy of praise. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of blessing because your steadfast love endures forever, even especially when you and I do not deserve it. Which shouldn't surprise us if we're Christians, right? This is nothing new or revolutionary. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which doesn't tell us that if we are good or if we are at our best or if we just um, think or believe the right things, then 
God will love us. No, no, God, the gospel of Jesus is that God loves you. God loves us when we're at our worst, when we're beyond deserving. God loves you when you are least deserving. This is how the apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter five. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And friends, do not let that grow old or rote or routine for you because if that is true, that changes absolutely everything. God doesn't just love you when you're doing the right things. He's not just proud of you when you have it all together. The grace of God comes to us at our least deserving. And so David says, hey, will you magnify the Lord with me? Will you exalt him with me? Will you speak back to him everything that he, good that he has done? And, and like, think about this. I would not be happy if I were David in this situation. He's with 400, like, of the lowest of the low. They have nothing to, nothing to offer. They're literally all running away from their problems to the desert. And David says, hey, the only thing we have is the goodness, the grace of God. So let us together remember who he is and deliver blessing, praise, and honor back to him. Because no matter where we find ourselves, as Charles Spurgeon says, it is well to mark our mercies with well-carved memorials. We can bless God, we can rejoice in his goodness when everything goes wrong because he delivers when we don't deserve it. Reason number two that David gives in this psalm is that God provides when we are helpless. Look down with me at verse eight. David says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One of my favorite things about the Bible is how um, it invites us to test whether or not what it's saying is true. David doesn't just say, hey, get over it. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. Just that's it. He's not talking about God's goodness like it's some abstract fact or formula like two plus two equals four. He's inviting you to actually ingest the Lord's goodness. He's saying to you that God is the type of being that you can actually experience. And his goodness can be as near and close to you and as real to you as your favorite bite of food. So, so the Bible is going to invite you to test, to taste, to see that the Lord is good. But it's also going to invite you to reorient the way that you look at the world through the eyes of faith. Because 
our definition of goodness doesn't overlap with um, God's definition of goodness most of the time. Like, like I said earlier, when we think about when things are going well or when things are good, I think about comfort. I think about having the things that I need. I think about a fulfilling career or a full bank account or, or whatever it is. Fill in, fill in the blank of what you think of when you think about what is good. And those things are really good. They can be signs of God's grace and generosity to us. But all of verse 8 goes together. We're, we're not allowed to fill in the blank or define what God's goodness means or looks like because the second half of verse 8 shows us where we experience the goodness of God. It's not in comfort. It's not when things are all going our way. It's when we take refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him, who runs to him. We taste and see that he's good by running to him, which means that when you are in need of refuge, which is to say when you are helpless and when you have nothing to give, you're actually in the ideal spot to experience and taste the goodness and blessing of God. Look at the way that verses 9 and 10 talk about the provision of God saying, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions um, were the most powerful predators in David's day. They're the top of the food chain. They're this symbol of um, strength, an apex predator. But David is saying, hey, it's not the strength or the ability that determines whether or not you're going to be provided for because lions are going to suffer want and hunger before God fails to provide for anyone who takes refuge in him. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Which again, we need to ask, what does that mean? Because I'm looking right now at a room of people um, who I can genuinely say, seek the Lord uh, and love the Lord and want more of God like in your life. You read the Bible, you pray, you live in community, you do, you do all the things and there are so many things that are in your life right now that feel like they conflict with this fact. Like this statement, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Like I can think of a lot of good things that we're lacking in this room. Like, some of you have lost family members. Some of you um, are wondering what your jobs are going to look like. Um, yeah, there's real, like, grief and brokenness and sadness. And so, like, how, how do we hold those things together? Um, and I thought, and I prayed, like, a lot about that this week. I struggled with it. And the only solution that I can see is that God's goodness is not defined by or limited to our circumstances. Because our opinion of God's goodness rises and falls with the way that our life is going. If things are going well, then God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Let's celebrate, let's rejoice. But things don't turn out the way that we expected, or when we lose things, or when friendships fall apart, we wonder, hey God, where are you? Um, what did I do wrong? Are you actually there? And there like, is a place of 
real lament for those things. The Psalms are full of cries of heartbreak, anguish, and lament. But what David is doing in this Psalm is inviting you to interpret God's goodness. Um, I'm sorry, I totally screwed up that line. God, (laughs) David is inviting you instead of interpreting God's goodness through your circumstances, he wants you to interpret your circumstances through his goodness. Because one of those feels more real to us than the other. Our circumstances feel really real. Our reality in front of us feels really real. And David is inviting us to say, hey, no, the most real thing is the goodness and the presence and the faithfulness of God. So no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what it is that you're facing, God's goodness is more real than that. How, how, does, this work, how does this work out? I heard the story this week of um, a British missionary in the 1850s um, whose name was Alan Gardner. He had this dream of going to South America, um, starting a mission, establishing churches, preaching the gospel. And so he set off with uh, a crew of friends to go and try to establish a mission. So they get dropped off um, in Patagonia. And immediately it becomes clear to them that they underestimated the difficulty of what it is that they were about to do. Um, They didn't have enough food or provisions. They didn't have ways to get more food and provisions. Their resupply ship got um, stuck and couldn't make it to them in time. Um, And they actually, all of them ended up starving to death uh, on this island, failing to do what they set out and accomplished to do. And so this um, supply ship shows up a few weeks um, after they pass away and find journals um, that these men kept while they were waiting for the ship that never came, while they wrestled with the fact that they weren't going to do what they had set out to do, what they had left their home to do. And instead of those journals um, containing like bitterness or anger, they're full of statements like, I am overwhelmed right now by the goodness of God. Alan Gardner, in one of his last posts, actually quotes Psalm 34. Um, The young lions may suffer need or want, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He writes that down and he says, as everything goes wrong, I'm overwhelmed by a sense of the nearness and the goodness of God. What he's realizing or seeing in that moment is that the thing that we stand on, the thing that is most real, the thing that will sustain us and provide us through the end is the goodness of God. Come what may, even if we lose our life, We will never, in Christ, lose the goodness and the presence of God. And he comes to us when we have nothing to offer, when we have nothing to give, and all we have to do is seek him. How do we boast in the goodness of God when things fall apart? We remember that he delivers us when we don't deserve it. He provides for us when we're helpless. And then finally, the last reason that David gives to boast in the goodness of God is that God is near to us when we are broken. 
God is near to us when we are broken. Look down with me at verse 15 of Psalm 34. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Uh, after, after church last Sunday, uh, I drove up with my family to Chicago to uh, visit Kara's dad, um, and we were just planning to spend a few days uh, up there. Going back to Chicago is always complicated for us uh, in the first place. Uh, we have a lot of really deep uh, friendships there that we're really thankful for, and like a lot of grief and a lot of hurt, um, and things that just kind of you know rise up to the surface uh, while we're there. So we were at Kara's dad's house uh, on the 4th of July, uh, which is about three miles away from downtown Highland Park, uh, when we started hearing um, sirens and helicopters. Um, and we soon heard and realized that, like I'm sure all of you guys heard and realized, that there was a uh, mass shooting that happened um, in a place that like, we know and love, um, they have been to tons of times. Uh, and so I'm reading this psalm trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to say? Um, and listening to, like, reports of, hey, you know, stay in place, shelter in place, lockdown. Didn't find the guy for hours. And so there was, like, this whole day of uncertainty and really deep, like, grief um, and sadness and sorrow that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's really broken. We don't live in a fairy tale world um, where things always work out the way that we expect them to. Um, and it is not right when things like Highland Park or fill in the blank for whatever other mass shooting happens. It's not right. It's not right when families fall apart. Um, it isn't right that sometimes the worst happens. And I was reading this and realized like, hey, like this psalm cannot be true just for some like fairy tale abstract world. This psalm has to be true for this world. This world that we live in that is in need of the grace of God. And what David is saying is that God's grace, God's goodness is for this world. Because God is not someone who is far away and unfamiliar with heartbreak and grief and sorrow. He is right there in the middle of it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So for all of you in this room feeling in a really particular way the brokenness and the grief of this world east of Eden, Psalm 34 is for you. And the promises of God are for you. Here are a few of the promises that David lines out in this psalm. God sees. His eyes are open. He is not so far removed that he is missing you and not understanding what is going on. God sees. God hears. God hears when you pray and cry out to him, that prayer that you've prayed a million times already, God hears. God has set himself against 
evil and all those who commit evil and has promised that one day evil will fall back on itself and will not even be a memory anymore. God hears your cries. God is coming for you and God is near to you. Which does not mean by the way, um, that once you start following Jesus, once you start crying out to God, then everything is going to be amazing or okay because verse 19, right after the Lord is near to the broken heart and saves the crushing spirit, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 34 assumes that things might not actually get better anytime soon. So what's the point why bother? The point is that God is with you in the middle of it, and he will not allow you to be crushed. He, verse 20, keeps all of his bones so that not one of them is broken. God loves you. He is coming for you. He will deliver you ultimately from every single sorrow, and no one who comes to him will be cast out which means that as we pick up wounds and scars in this life, we remember, as Charles Spurgeon again says, heaven heals all wounds. Heaven heals all wounds. The Spirit of God heals all wounds. He is coming to make all things new, which means that we can be the kind of people that can sing, give strength, my heart is failing, and really know what that means and feels like. And also, in the same breath, say, yet still my lips will praise you. Always. Why? Because your goodness is more fundamental, is more real. You are near to those who are brokenhearted. And I was so convicted by this this week. As I was driving back home, I was listening to an interview uh, with a pastor um, at one of the uh, kind of large historic black churches uh, in Chicago. And the interviewer was asking him, like, hey, what, what sets apart or what um, is distinct about African-American preaching? And Charlie Dates, the pastor, said, we view the sermon as a corporate act of celebration and rejoicing before God which I thought was amazing because if you know anything about the history or the experience of the black church in America or black people in America, you know that there's not a lot circumstantially to rejoice about. There's a lot of oppression. There's a lot of um, obstacles. There are a lot of barriers. There are a lot of reasons not to rejoice or give thanks. And yet, Charlie Dates was saying we make a practice to demonstrate a defiant joy in the goodness of God despite everything that we are facing, which I love because, like, I'm really bad at joy. I, I, can, I can do, like, serious pretty well. Joy is hard for me. I think joy is maybe hard for a lot of us here, uh, especially when we're feeling the weight and the brokenness of all the things that are going on around us. How can we have joy we can have joy because all of this is true. All of this is real. God's goodness, God's deliverance is not some abstract idea that you can use to kind of coax yourself through. He's with us. He's present. 
He, he, he is so committed and serious to making sure that all of his words will come through that he gave himself as a down payment on your future. The promises of God in Psalm 34 and throughout all of the Bible are bought with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, if Jesus can go into the worst of the worst and take the sin, the brokenness, the evil of the world onto himself, pay the penalty for it, and then come out of the grave on the other side, that means that every time we rehearse the gospel, every time we sing songs about the gospel, we're reminding ourselves about our future. That our future isn't determined or dictated by whatever it is that you have in front of you right now. Whatever the scariest thing in your life right now is not more determinative than the grace and goodness of God. And that is something worth rejoicing in. That's something worth repeating to ourselves and to each other over and over and over again. That's something that is worth remembering, calling to mind actively. Because God is with us. We can boast. We can rejoice in his goodness. We can revel in his grace that he delivers us when we did not deserve it. He meets us and provides for us when we're helpless, and he is near to us when we are broken and we are crushed. And so we come to the communion table to taste and to see, literally, that the Lord is good. Communion is so many different things. It's an invitation to the Lord's table. It's an invitation to his presence. It's a reminder that he's going to make all things new. More than that, when people in Jesus' day would make covenants, which is more binding than a contract, they would share a meal together. They would break bread. They would drink wine together. And so when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he's not just saying, hey, check out this cool feast that I have for you. He's saying, hey, this is a promise. This is a sure thing. This is a guarantee, the most real thing that you can bank your life on in this world. So come and eat. If you believe that, if your hope is in the goodness and the faithfulness of God more than anything else, you're a Christian. Communion is for you. The Lord's table is for you. The way that we celebrate uh, and observe communion here at Redeemer is that we'll have um, three stations in the front. One station up top, uh, down in the front, we will have a single-serve gluten-free station uh, that you can come up. There's a double cup uh, in it that has uh, a wafer and uh, some juice. The other stations will be a loaf of bread uh, and uh, wine and the stoneware, juice and the glassware. Um, Come, remember, repeat, rejoice in the goodness and the grace of God. Uh, that is for you. If you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. This is kind of what we believe. This is why, this is why we are here. This is why we think we have any hope at all. Um, don't take this meal. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you. Or you can just sit in your uh, pew. We have some prayers in the back of the pew in front of you that you could take uh, and read. Um, we're so happy that you're here. We'll have people up here if you want to pray um, who would love to pray with you. If you're in need of prayer for any reason at all, come to the front uh, and receive prayer. We would love to pray for you. So uh, I'm going to pray for all of us right now. Uh, Then we'll take communion, worship God a little bit more, uh, and the servers can come forward. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we trust you. Oh, we need you. 
because um, I feel really acutely my, um, like my failures and my sins and my lack of deserving. I don't deserve anything from you, and, and, and you still love me. Um, you still say that I can come and taste and see that you're good, that your steadfast love endures forever. So God, I pray, like, will you meet us? You're the one who needs to show us that um, you're good. You're the one that needs to show up. Uh, I don't have what it takes. None of us do. We need you. So God, thank you. We bless you. We praise you. You are good. You always have been good, and you always will be good. So we give us joy as we come to your table. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Come when you're ready.